from the Gospel of Mark. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. So, I was scrolling through the news this week, and you know, we don't turn through the news anymore, right? We scroll. And uh, I came across an article on these new um, augmented reality goggles. Have you seen these before, the Apple Vision Pro? It's, it's, it's a fun, fun little video of uh, people walking across the street and sitting on the subway, and they've got these giant goggles on, and they're making these hand motions like they're engaging with things that aren't actually there, right? They could be playing games, they could be checking their mail, you don't really know. Uh, you just see somebody waving around on a subway. And, uh, you know, and, you, and you wonder why they might be doing this. What's the draw to something like Apple Vision Pro? You know, where you can play games or take pictures or superimpose anything onto reality. And, and I wondered as I was looking at this if it wasn't because they were looking to make life a little bit more interesting. If they were looking to make it more interactive. It was almost as if the physical world, the material world, this world, was too uninteresting, so it needed some enhancing. Well, I think they're right. Not to wear those giant goggles in public, uh, you won't catch me in one, but I think that their intuition about the world, as moderns see it, is dead on. This material world, where we're just a bunch of molecules bouncing off each other, scrabbling to create meaning out of our lives, right? That's modernity. That's how we moderns see it. But is this really all there is? You know, in our gospel for this morning, Jesus reveals his glory, who he truly is, and he flips the modern understanding of the world and of reality itself on its head. And I've got two points for today, two points for us. Point one is living in a material world, and point two is unless ye become like children. So let's jump in. Point one, living in a material world. You know, there was a time when man would look at the stars and the heavens, the sun and the moon, and see the beauty of God's handiwork. We even read it in our own, Psalm 8. Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look to your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. There was a time when we would look at creation itself, these, even these material things, as a sign that point beyond themselves to the one who ordered existence out of nothing. There's a time when we'd see the world that way. We see it again from Paul in Romans 1. For God's invisible attributes, the things that we can't see, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, we'd see through them to God. But that was then. That's when we were unenlightened. Flash forward, it's 1961. And by some miracle of technology, the Russians managed to get a man named Yuri into space. With less computing power than we carry in our pockets, man had first time crossed into the heavens, the realm of the and there's an apocryphal story that after looking around, Yuri said, I don't see any God up here. 
So what happened to us? Did we become more enlightened? Well, a few things happened. Skepticism happened, where we had to pretend not to know anything at all in order to start over with some sure foundation of knowledge. Forget everything else. What can we know is real? And then empiricism happened. With philosophers like Locke and Hume, they started arguing that, you know, we can't really know anything except that we can, what we can see with our five senses, what we can touch or taste or see or hear. That's what's really real. That's the most real. And then Bacon came along with his scientific method, and he's like, you know, we want to find out what's really real. We'll come up with a hypothesis. We'll do some observations, some testing, you know, and we'll see if we can really get to the heart of the matter. And that's what's really real. Now, Bacon wouldn't have said that, right? He was a Christian and a devout Anglican. He'd actually probably agree with Kepler that science is the process of thinking God's thoughts after him. But that's not where the West went. That's not where we moderns went with the world. Instead, like the drunk who limited his search for his car keys under a street lamp, because that was the only place that he could see, right? We limited God to the material. And then we dismissed God when he didn't fit under a microscope. I mean, it's absurd if you think about it. But then we went a step further. You see, if that wasn't enough, Derrida and his deconstructionists attacked objective meaning itself. If there's no God, we're free to create meaning in whatever way we see fit. There's no inherent or purpose to anything. Life is a free-for-all, and it's all up for grabs. Y'all see where we went as a society? In less than 500 years, we went from seeing the world in 4K as a vibrant place of wonder and enchantment, of mystery, of God at work, seeking how we can join Him in that work, of discovering what He's actually made the world for and the purpose behind everything. And we've chucked out our 4K vision, and we've put in a black and white TV with very poor reception, and we call that the real world. And we might think, well, we're Christians, you know, like, we know that God exists. But this idea of modernity, it's in the water. It's around us. We live in it. We swim in it. And we can be just as guilty. And here's what I mean. In some instances, we've accepted the modern view of the world and just added religion on top. We place more faith in the material things of this world and our well-being in the material things of this world and not God. And then we add God on top of that. You know, um, I know this is not a stewardship sermon, Stewardship season is over. However, when we look at our finances, we say, this is where my security is, and my giving can come after I'm secure, after the material has me buoyed up. Then I can add religion on top. Or maybe we look at our lives this way. We say, you know, instead of asking God for what I'm made for, for meaning in my life, I'll say, well, I, I know what I want to do, and I'm just going to pursue that. And then I'll add God on top with a little blessing of what I've already chosen to do with my life. Do you see what I mean? It's in the water. We live as if the material is the most real, and the spiritual is just something to be added to it. Now, that's not very satisfying for us if we think about it, right? It's not a very satisfying world to live in, and so we create these augmented realities. And we create Disney, this fun and fanciful place of wonder on the surface that is perfectly suited for children, yes, where they can run and laugh and play and experience joy. But we adults know, we know that real life is really what's underneath, isn't it? Right? I, I, remember, I think it was 
maybe 10, 15 years ago that I learned underneath Disney were this network of tunnels and, you know, steam valves and grime, you know? Underneath that costume is some sweaty guy, right, greeting our kids. And we say, well, that's the real world. The real world, right, where we experience hardship, where we come to know betrayal and loss injustice and malice more intimately than we would have ever desired. The real world is where someone as good and as holy and as innocent as Jesus Christ can be tortured and killed on a cross. That's the real world. Now, as a parent, then, there's this tension with our kids because our kids don't see the world the way that we do. And so, as a parent, you're saying, you know, I really want to preserve my kids' idyllic world of joy and innocence and wonder on one hand, but I also want to prepare them for the harsh reality of the real world on the other, right? Enjoy your life while you're young, kid, because the real world's coming. You're not going to like it. But what if our kids actually have a better sense of the real world than we do? What if our children are the ones who can see further and deeper even than we can? What if they are the ones who recognize reality for what it truly is, a world made by Jesus and for Jesus, a place of joy and wonder and beauty, of deep meaning that God has woven into every strand of reality? What if the real world isn't material at all, but it's the spiritual world that God has created? Which brings us to our second point, unless ye become like children. You know, soon after our gospel passage in Mark today, Jesus is sitting there teaching, and people start to bring children to Jesus. You know, that, that, that maybe he'll touch them, maybe he'll bless them, maybe he'll interact with them in some way. And the disciples, you might remember the story, they turn the kids away. You know, Jesus is a serious man. He's an important man. There's, there's really no place for children here. But then Jesus is indignant, and he rebukes them. And what does he say? He says, let them come, for to such as these belong the kingdom of God. In fact, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Well, what does this, this mean? Does this mean that in order to see God in creation, to experience his kingdom, we have to become naive like children? Should, should I somehow just forget what I know about the world? what I've learned and experienced about the material world and suffering? Is that what I have to do? Well, no. You've probably heard the distinction between um, childlike and childish, right? You've heard this distinction? You know, childish, when we call someone childish, what are we saying about them? We're saying that they're immature, that they're impatient, that they're demanding, that they're emotionally unstable maybe, you know? You're ruled by your stomach, right? You're ruled by your lack of sleep. Like, that's childish. But childlike is totally different. Childlike is open. It's humble. It's trusting. It's seeing the world as God made it to be, as he intends it to be, as the world could be and will be again. It's understanding what is most real about the world. This became apparent to me um, a while ago when I had to talk about uh, the death of someone in my family to the kids. And that's, that's never an easy conversation for a five- and seven-year-old to talk about death, right? That's a little heavy. 
But I go to share this with them, and, and our conversation quickly became like that game with the baseball bat. Do you know the one where you start with your hand on the bottom of the bat, and then somebody puts their hand on top, and then you go, right, and whoever caps it's the winner? You familiar with that? Well, it became like that very quickly, because I go to my son, and I say, you know, um, so-and-so has died and, and, and went to be with Jesus, and we're really going to be sad for a while and miss her. And then my son fires back, and he says, oh, so she's with Jesus. Yes, son, but, but we're going to miss her. She's gone. You know, like, it's going to be really sad for a while. Oh, she's with Jesus. Back and forth we went. Yes, son, but, <laughs> but the point is, right, the real truth is that she's not here. No, dad, the point, the real truth is that she's with the Lord. That's what lies at the foundation of all things. And so I ask you, who, which of us in that conversation had a better sense of what was truly real? of the reality that lay under everything else? Who got to the heart of the matter? You know, it isn't sadness and loss that's the most real. It's there. It's something we have to go through and experience. It's real, but it's not the most real. Instead, it's temporary, a brief shadow of mourning that passes before the eternal light of God. To be childlike, then, is to see deeper, is to see the world and everything in it as God has made it to be. It's to be nearly late to class every day because your sons want to stop and examine every single beetle and every blade of grass and every leaf because it's the most special one. It's to see God's hand in creation and His work in each particular thing that He has made. It's to see your parents as this idealized version of themselves you know, that's something that we forget when kids are really little. They think that you just, you're just the most amazing thing that has ever been. They see the you that you wish you were. They see the you that perhaps you had potential to be. And until you really prove them wrong, <laughs> until you continually prove otherwise, and until they're teenagers and they've wisened up, right, they will think that you hung the moon. Why? Because they see the you that God has created you to be. To see, to see like a child then, to be childlike, is to see God in everything. To know what the most real is most fund foundational reality, again, it's not the material but the spiritual. It's not atoms and molecules but God and His work. And that's the truth that's conveyed by Jesus in our gospel text for this morning. After taking His three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a high mountain, we read that Jesus was transfigured before them. In the Greek, it's metamorpheo, right? Metamorphosis, changed. It's a complete change. It's not only His body, but even the material that's touching Him, everything around Him is changed, is transfigured into this radiant, intense whiteness, such that Mark helpfully tells us no launderer could bleach them. I mean, he's really driving it home. And then God appears in the cloud, and He declares Jesus' identity. This is my beloved Son. In a moment perhaps of, grace, of Christ's greatest self-revelation up to this point. This is the reality of who Jesus is. It's His most fundamental reality. As someone said, the greater miracle is not that Jesus showed forth His glory, but that He restrained it for the whole rest of His life. This is who Jesus is and always has been. And in revealing His glory to the disciples, He proved our children right, that the foundation of reality is not the mere material but the spiritual, 
the most real, underneath it all is God. And if this is true, well, there's some implications for us, aren't there? If this is true, then the so-called real world of adults, right, the hard-up, chain-smoking coal miner at Wigan Pier, right, the world of pain and suffering and toil is not the world as it truly is, as it is underneath and will be again. If this is true, it means that the empiricists and the deconstructionists, the world of the merely material and of meaninglessness is not the real world at all. And if that's the way that we see the world, you know, if, we, if we've grown up, if we've lost what it's like to be childlike, it's only because we've experienced just enough suffering, just enough betrayal, just enough heartache and disappointment to develop cataracts of cynicism that protect us but obscure our vision at the same time. And I'll give you some examples of this. For example, when we meet a stranger, right, stranger danger, our first instinct may be of suspicion and distrust. Our first instinct may be closing off ourselves of being guarded because we assume that at the core of every person is a snake and we've been bit before. But what if the snake isn't the most fundamental thing to that person? What if the snake is merely an intruder in that person's garden that needs to be driven out? What if we can see the person for the paradise that God has created them to be? And what if we can help them draw that out? You know, I think we can. The word from our gospel, metamorpheo, is used two other times in the New Testament, transfiguration, metamorpheo. And both times it refers not to Jesus, but to us changing. In Romans, Paul writes that we are not to be conformed to the world. We're not to live after the pattern of the world. We're not to live in this, the, the, the water of the world that we've been drinking, right? We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can see, so that we can discern the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is to recover this childlike way of seeing the world of wonder and mystery to see the goodness of God in the world. And in 2 Corinthians, this change happens from one degree to the next. It's a slow process, but it happens from one degree to the next as we behold the glory of God. As we see Him, He changes us. You see, we live in a world enchanted by God, a world that He created, a world that He saw was good, a world where suffering and pain is not the end of the story. It is merely fleeting, ephemeral, and it does not have the final say. We don't need Apple Vision Pro to enhance this world. We just need to recover our childlike vision, to look for God at work in everything and everyone, to participate with Him in that work and be transformed, to see our neighbors as they were created to be and might become, glorious and resplendent in the presence of God to see something as ordinary as a workplace, not merely as a means to gain material things, but a place that we can honor one another, that we can lift each other up, that we can offer our diligence to our employers even as we are offering glory to God, to see every interaction with the potential to discover what God is already doing. And finally, if we can recover our childlike way of seeing the world, if we can be transformed, metamorpheo, 
then we can walk confidently in the trials of our lives because we know for certain that they don't have the last say. To live with faith is to see the world in this childlike manner and know that goodness is at the heart of the world, of reality, and it is to live with courage. It's no coincidence that the martyrs in Revelation were wearing bleached white robes. They were able to live as they did in confidence and courage and faith because they saw the world for what God created it to be. And so my hope for us as we are about to enter Lent, right, and Lent is always coming, isn't it? As we're about to enter Lent, is that we can recover our childlike way of being in the world such that when trials arrive, and they will come, we will, be, we will take courage and remember that it's good that triumphs. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us this great gift of revealing your Son to the world, and in doing so, you have showed us the goodness, the eternal that lies at the heart of what you have created. I pray that we would seek after you and seek after that goodness, that we would learn to see the world with fresh eyes, that we would learn to bring about the goodness that you have in store for creation by participating with you in your work. Lord, grant us courage as we walk forward and faith that you carry all things in your hands. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.